When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back, bingers, to another episode of our podcast. This week, we are continuing and concluding our theme around bungled burglaries or burglaries gone bad, where someone ends up dead. Now, in the last episode, it turned out the burglary wasn't, in fact, really a bungled burglary. It was a premeditated murder staged to look like a burglary gone bad. Today, we're covering two stories from the Midwest, starting with a little-known case out of Lansing, Michigan, that occurred in the early 90s. The call came into emergency dispatch at 4.16 in the morning. On the other end of it was an elderly woman. 911, someone broke into my house, 11421, frightened. And she sounded frightened. Someone broke into my house, she told the operator. She gave her address as 4217 Brighton Drive. And then suddenly, on the phone, she began screaming. She was wailing in absolute terror. And then the line went dead. Kim Gray, the 911 operator who took the call, had only been on the job for six months, and this was the first call like this that she'd ever had to deal with. She called the number back, but kept getting a busy signal. Kim recognized something was very wrong here, and that's why it took police no more than five minutes to arrive at the address where a 67-year-old woman named Audrey Spray lived alone. She lived in a neighborhood that was low crime and considered by those who lived there to be safe. So this was an unusual occurrence, and Lansing police were familiar with Audrey Spray. They knew exactly who she was because Audrey had been a longtime employee of the Lansing Police Department, where she had actually worked as a fingerprint analyst. In fact, she had retired only four months earlier, four months before this 911 call. This was supposed to be the beginning of Audrey Spray's golden years, but those golden years weren't to be. When the cops arrived at her house after this call, they found the side door of the home violently kicked in, with broken glass spread out on the kitchen floor in front of it. Everything inside the house was eerily quiet. The bathroom door had also been knocked off its hinges. And inside that bathroom, on the floor next to the toilet, 
was the nude body of Audrey Spray with her cordless phone on the floor next to her and a bloody wound in her head that would later be identified as a bullet hole. Audrey had been in the middle of calling 911, cowering in her bathroom when she was shot in the head. Glass was shattered all over the floor, so it was a noisy break and enter. And it looked as though once she heard this, she had immediately grabbed the cordless phone just as the intruder was making his entrance, ran from her bed without even having time to put clothes on, and locked herself in her bathroom where she called 911. But then the intruder just as violently kicked in the bathroom door off its hinges. And Audrey was shot in the side of the head and it looked to investigators like she had turned her head in a totally reflexive, desperate attempt to shield herself from the bullet. What else could one do in a situation like that? Audrey had literally no escape. Nothing in the house had been ransacked. The intruder, if indeed he was a burglar, had little time to actually burglarize the house because Audrey had heard him breaking in, ran to the bathroom to call 911, and was killed probably within a minute of the break-in. And then the cops were there in a little under five minutes later. So the burglar was likely at the scene for not even five minutes. He knew the cops were coming and were probably going to be there any second. But Audrey's purse was missing from the house. That's all the burglar had time to grab. So this was looking like it was kind of an impulsive, poorly planned, and rather desperate burglary. And the killer might prove very difficult to find. After the sun rose and the business day began, the police were faced with the unenviable task of tracking down Audrey's three grown daughters and notifying them of their mother's violent death. They were absolutely shocked and heartbroken to learn that their mother's life had ended this way. Her daughter Erica couldn't bring herself to tell her own children how their grandmother died. She had to make something up so they wouldn't have nightmares. Erica fully expected that her mother would be around at least another two decades and would be able to watch her grandchildren grow into adults. Erica thought about this as she washed the blood from the bathroom where her mother died. Neither she nor her sisters could think of anybody who would or should want to do their mother harm. No one in the neighborhood had seen or heard anything that was useful to investigators. And only one neighbor heard what sounded to him like a hammer banging around the time that Audrey was shot. So he was either hearing the door being kicked in or he was hearing the actual gunshot. People who lived in the neighborhood were now turning into citizen detectives, beginning their own porch front investigations. They zeroed in on a rape that took place a block away from Audrey's house just a month earlier. Maybe they were connected. And then an armed robbery suspect had recently escaped from a courtroom during his arraignment and was still at large. So this reputably safe neighborhood was no longer feeling so safe to a lot of people who lived there. Even though this was the first murder in Lansing in all of 1993, more than two months into the year, some of the residents in the area put their houses on the market. Not long before the murder, someone had spray painted some obscene graffiti on Audrey's home. She had made a vandalism report with the Lansing PD. This happened shortly after she had painted the house as she herself was intending to put it on the market and move to the East Coast to live her retirement with one of her three daughters. So... Even before the murder, here was Audrey herself, no longer feeling safe living in the neighborhood. The house she'd lived in for over 15 years had just been graffitied. 
In the months before her murder, Audrey's behavior had changed. Something had apparently spooked her. She seemed afraid of something, paranoid even. Robert Toman, the neighbor who heard the hammer-like sound around the time of the murder, told police that Audrey had called him to ask about his security lights three weeks before the murder. Another household nearby told investigators that Audrey had asked them to keep an eye on her when she returned home at night, walking from her car to her back door. She also wanted that neighbor to accompany her to neighborhood watch meetings. Audrey, for some reason, had been specifically afraid that an intruder might come into her home and kill her. She told one neighbor that she had already mapped out a few places she would hide if an intruder came into her home. Now, this is not normal. She was telling neighbors that she was either going to hide under a bed, she had said, inside a closet or in one of the bathrooms. Sadly, she was killed inside one of those hiding places. So that's why home invasions are, at least for me, among the scariest scenarios because your home is where you would expect to feel the safest and the most secure. I don't think it's victim blamey to say that some murder victims are more vulnerable than others, like sex workers, for example, or like I touched on recently, there's some level of risk in being a realtor or working in a convenience store late at night. But inside your home, that's the place that you should expect to feel your safest. This should be your refuge. Something like what happened to Audrey is everyone's worst nightmare because it's something you can't really avoid if it happens to you. So immediately after Audrey's murder, the scene was carefully processed by crime scene investigators. Everything between the kitchen where the killer entered and the bathroom where the victim was found was cordoned off and dusted for fingerprints. Police found a single smudged fingerprint in the kitchen. They also wanted to find footwear impressions. The linoleum floor was dusted with a powder called Aurora Pink, which sticks to moisture. Then a fluorescent light was used to reveal possible shoe impressions. They found one. It was an athletic shoe, the left shoe. And then the shards of glass from the broken window, which covered the linoleum floor, those shards were collected to examine for potential shoe impressions. And they were sent to a forensic lab. And in the lab, they found another shoe impression on a shard of glass. Here, they used a technique called super glue fuming to reveal it. It was a partial shoe impression, which was determined to be from the toe area of the killer's right shoe. So these two impressions combined, the one from the floor and the one from the piece of glass, created a nearly complete shoe impression. Investigators then used a law enforcement database of shoe impressions called Soulmate, combing through thousands of soul patterns until they finally came upon a match. The shoe was a size 13 Spalding brand tennis shoe, their first major piece of evidence in this murder. So it's important to note, and I feel like this is something that often isn't thought about, Sometimes when a victim is shot in the head, it isn't immediately obvious until autopsy that a gunshot wound is the cause of death. Because with head wounds, it's not always apparent at first glance what caused them. A gunshot wound and a blow to the head can look similar. With Audrey, how she was killed wasn't obvious when she was first found at the scene. And once the medical examiner ruled the cause of death to have been a gunshot to the head, police did not release this information to the media. They also didn't release Audrey's 911 call, nor the contents of it. I mean, that's an eerie 911 call. This is what's known in law enforcement lingo as hold back information. 
When police hold back information like this, it's because they know that only people with direct inside knowledge of the crime will know these details. Only the killer, the 911 operator, and the police will know that Audrey was basically killed while on the phone with 911. So releasing this information to the public can muddy the waters. If police receive a tip, or if they're interviewing a suspect and the source reveals something about the crime that is known only to police and to the killer, that's how investigators are able to separate the dead ends from solid leads. So the only information police released about how Audrey was murdered was that her head had been bleeding when they discovered her. But then a month went by and the leads remained few and far between. Crime Stoppers posted a $1,000 reward, or rather a reward of up to $1,000, for information leading to an arrest of Audrey's killer, which even for 1993 doesn't seem like a lot. But then the Michigan State Police threw in an additional $5,000, probably because they didn't expect a mere grand to be very motivating to potential tipsters. So anyway, it was around this time in the investigation that an area dude out for a stroll found Audrey Spray's purse in a field about a mile from her house. Her ID and credit cards were inside, but all of the money was gone. So it looked like robbery may have in fact been the motive. Then, two weeks later, a month and a half after the murder, 911 dispatch received a call. It was an eerie echo of Audrey's from a home not far away from hers. The frightened sounding resident reported that someone was currently trying to break inside their home. Police sped to the scene while the intruder was still there. The burglar's work was interrupted with a surprise arrest. The burglar was 25-year-old Edwin Parker, this is a pseudonym, who had an extensive criminal record and was a known burglar. And you know what kind of shoes he was wearing upon his arrest? A pair of Spalding brand tennis shoes, just like the shoe prints found at Audrey Spray's house. Authorities raced Parker's shoes to the forensic lab where they were compared to the footwear impression from Audrey's home. The shoe print analyst was looking at both the factory design of the shoe's sole, as well as the patterns of visible wear that occur when worn. Those two characteristics combined are as specific as a fingerprint. And in this case, the two pairs of shoes were not a match. The wear patterns were clearly different and the shoes weren't even the right size. It's safe to say the investigators were very disappointed here and essentially had to go back to square one because this was the first and only promising lead that had surfaced in the investigation up to this point. Then, months after the murder, another tip came in, though from whom is not exactly clear. Different sources give different information. The coverage in the local press at the time reported that an anonymous tipster had phoned into Crime Stoppers, naming a 22-year-old man, John Skinner, as a suspect in Audrey's murder. The Forensic Files episode about this case claimed that an inmate at a local correctional facility had written a letter implicating Skinner. It's possible that both are true, as it was also reported in the news at the time of the investigation that a fellow inmate at the Ingham County Jail in a neighboring cell had claimed that Skinner confessed to him after they heard a radio ad from Crime Stoppers offering the reward in the spray case. It triggered Skinner to just begin bragging about how the crime went down and what he had done. 
All right, when you're traveling, do you ever stress about what's happening back home? Like, did you forget to lock up or leave a window open? That's why I totally suggest getting Simply Safe home security today. It's for top notch security and peace of mind, no matter where your summer adventures take you. Anything you might worry about leaving your home for an extended period of time has been thought out by Simply Safe. It's whole home protection with sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. It's definitely so nice, you know, when you're home to be like, oh, no one's probably going to break in. But when you're away from home, it's also nice to have that peace of mind that there's not a fire, there's not a flood, no one is coming into your house. There's a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras we've installed, so we have a view of all the entry points. Plus, I just feel relieved knowing that it's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash Payton, P-A-Y-T-O-N. There's no safe like Simply Safe. True crime fans, do you have a knack for solving mysteries? Well, it's time for you to meet your new favorite game, June's Journey. Dive headfirst into the opulent and perilous world of the 1920s as June Parker, determined to unravel the enigma of her sister's murder. With each hidden clue you discover, you're not just solving puzzles. You're peeling back layers of scandalous family secrets, navigating through danger, and even stumbling into unexpected romance. Romance. Imagine every scene is a gateway to a new thrilling storyline, taking you from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. You guys, I've been engrossed in a chapter that's challenging and utterly compelling. If you're like me, enjoying a puzzle to unwind, June's journey hits the spot. Plus, I mean, decorating my estate is incredibly satisfying. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. I think the Forensic Files episode was taking some creative license with this particular case. For one, the episode reported that the victim's name was Audrey Nichols, not Audrey Spray, and that the murder occurred in October when in fact it had happened in March. Sometimes, for one reason or another, shows like Forensic Files will alter some of the details, perhaps at the request of family members or investigators. So in the case of John Skinner, it looks like that's what probably happened. The anonymous tip was called in in June, and then a couple months later, the inmate wrote a letter to the district attorney offering to testify against Skinner in exchange for a plea deal. The inmate who sent the letter was a guy named Carl Headley, and he was facing seven counts of child sexual abuse for molesting boys in his neighborhood. I'm not sure what kind of plea deal he was after here or was eventually granted, hopefully not a very lenient one. But the thing about his letter was that it contained specific information about the crime, which would have only been known to the killer. And the information was accurate. In the letter, Hadley, the informant, wrote that Skinner told him he'd broken into the bathroom to find a naked older woman on the floor with a phone to her ear. The woman looked at him and saw his face, so he grabbed the phone from her and shot her in the head with a 32 caliber firearm. The fact that Audrey was naked, that she had been shot in the head, and shot with a 32, these were details not publicly known at the time. So that gave this tip legitimacy and made John Skinner a priority suspect for police. See, this is the value of holding back information if you're an investigator. This is information only the police and the killer would know. 
And John Skinner, by this time the tip was received, was already in prison serving the beginning of a 30 to 50 year sentence for shooting and robbing a truck driver. In that crime, he and two friends had approached a truck driver who was asleep in his truck and they woke him up claiming they were having car trouble. When the truck driver stepped out of his truck, John Skinner then shot him. And after he fell down, Skinner kicked the wounded man and robbed him. So this established that Skinner was one cold-blooded SOB, one who would shoot a good Samaritan without cause for a relatively small amount of money. The detective sat down with Skinner for an interview, but he claimed, of course, that he didn't do it and wasn't even in the area that night. They took his fingerprints and ran them against the unidentified smudged print found in Audrey Spray's kitchen. And much to their dismay, it wasn't a match. Nor were there any pairs of Spalding shoes in the prison storage locker or at the county jail where Skinner was first processed and held. Investigators were simply unable to find any evidence that Skinner had ever owned such a pair of shoes. And if such a pair of shoes was still out there somewhere, continuing to be worn, this would change the wear pattern and make them harder to match the impressions from the crime scene. Because the more the shoe is used, the more the tread wears, and the wear patterns disappear and are replaced by new ones. It's ever-changing, unlike a fingerprint. Once again, it seemed like this frustrating investigation had reached another dead end. But John Skinner remained the prime suspect. They feel like they had the guy, just not the evidence. And one thing investigators wanted to get a hold of were Skinner's prison records, which would contain a comprehensive list of all the property of his that had come in and possibly had been taken out. And when they finally obtained these records, they got the potential break they were looking for. The records that showed Skinner's mother had come in to pick up her son's property after his intake. So detectives paid Skinner's mom a visit at her home, which was less than a mile from Audrey Spray's house. Skinner had been living there at the time he was arrested. And inside Skinner's mom's house, in his bedroom, investigators found a pair of Spalding tennis shoes, size 13. The same size as the shoe prints from the crime scene. They confiscated the shoes, and just as had been done before with Edwin Parker, the shoes were sent off to the lab and compared to the partial shoe prints from the murder scene. And what do you know? They matched. Suddenly, the case against Skinner was strong on the basis of this piece of evidence and the circumstantial evidence. When he was confronted with this, Skinner had no explanation and could not account for why he was in Audrey Spray's house that night, walking over broken glass from the door that was kicked in. Faced with this evidence and his jailmate Carl Headley's information, Skinner decided to come clean and confess. He had little choice. Skinner was a high school dropout with an infant child and a serious drug problem. He told the detectives that he'd broken into Audrey's home to steal money to pay for beer and drugs. He admitted to kicking in the side door, running down the hallway, breaking open the bathroom door behind which he heard a woman's voice and finding Audrey on the floor talking into her phone. He told investigators that he knocked the phone out of her hand and then as he hauled off to strike her in the head with the gun, the gun just went off, which investigators didn't believe. They thought he was trying to minimize the murder as some kind of accident, when in fact, he shot this frightened elderly woman in the head at point blank range. He told them that an accomplice, whom he never named by the way, was waiting in a car outside. 
and he grabbed Audrey's purse as he ran out of the house and into the getaway car. The two men then rifled through the purse and split the cash they found, which was only $100, so $50 each. Audrey's life was taken for 100 bucks, like one-tenth of the Crime Stoppers reward. When asked where he had put the gun, Skinner told the police they'd never find the gun. At first he said it had been thrown down a sewer, but then he changed his story and said someone else had it and it would never be recovered. He ended up pleading guilty and was sentenced to 60 to 90 years in prison by a judge who told him he was a despicable monster. It's hard to disagree with that. John Skinner is, as the DA put it, everybody's worst nightmare. This is such a terrifying crime. What would you do if a burglar entered your home? Have you thought about it? Have you developed a plan like Audrey did? And if someone breaks into your home and you own a gun, then you're allowed to shoot to kill, right? Well, turns out it's not so simple, which a man named Byron David Smith learned the hard way about 10 years ago up in a Minnesota town called Little Falls. Byron Smith was the type of guy who liked to be in control. Everything in his life was tightly controlled. The 65-year-old man had retired in 2006 from a long career in the military as a security engineering officer for the State Department. He was highly trained, and his responsibilities included protecting U.S. embassies in foreign cities like Cairo, Beijing, and Bangkok from terrorism and espionage. But as a retiree, he was regarded as something of a loner. He'd never been married. He had no kids and he preferred it that way because it allowed him to maintain total freedom to do what he wanted, when he wanted, and to have control over every faucet of his life. But in 2012, he was dealing with a problem he seemingly had no control over, burglary. In a period of only a few months, Smith's house was burglarized more than half a dozen times. The burglars over the course of these burglaries made off with Smith's father's POW watch, a chainsaw, weapons, valuable coins from a coin collection, and over $4,000 in cash. But Byron Smith was the kind of guy who liked to take care of problems himself. Despite at least half a dozen burglaries, Smith only called the police in one of them. His preferred method of approaching this problem was with a shoulder holster and a loaded gun. He had begun to suspect that the burglars who kept returning to his house were local teenagers Haley Kiefer, who was 18 years old, and her cousin Nicholas Brady, who was 17. So he decided to install a security system and video surveillance system in his home and began stashing food and water in his basement, turning the space into a makeshift bunker. It was Thanksgiving morning. November 22nd, 2012. He was looking out his window and spotted Haley Kiefer driving slowly by his house. That's when he knew she was likely planning to hit it again, probably that night. So after finishing breakfast, he got into his truck and drove it down the road, parking it in front of a neighbor's house to make it look like no one was home. I need to get ready for her, he told his neighbors as he then returned to his house, prepared to face off with the serial teen burglars. He crept into his own home and enabled the security cameras he kept running inside. He turned on a handheld audio recorder he had situated on a shelf. He carefully and quietly unscrewed the light bulbs from around the house and then sat in a reading chair that was tucked away in a corner, hidden from view by a large bookcase. He was waiting, 
waiting with a pair of guns ready for action. And finally, later in the evening, Byron Smith listened as the two teens broke a window and entered his house once again. But this time, he sat silently and motionless like a spider, waiting for its prey to land in its web. And after about 10 minutes, Nicholas Brady, Haley Kiefer's cousin and accomplice, began walking down the basement stairs. That's when Smith opened fire, shooting Brady twice. Brady tumbled down the stairs, and once the teenager reached the bottom, Smith got up, walked over to Brady, and as the teen was looking up at him, fired a bullet into his head for good measure. You're dead, Byron Smith then said to the kid he just killed before wrapping the body in a tarp and dragging it into his workshop. Then he sat back down, reloaded his gun, and waited waited for Haley Kiefer sitting in his hidden chair. It was a short time later that Kiefer could be heard entering Smith's home and calling out for her cousin. When she received no response, she looked around the house and eventually made her way into the basement. Midway down the stairs, Kiefer was startled by the deafening crack of a gun and the piercing pain of a bullet entering her, knocking her down the stairs. Oh, sorry about that. Then Smith said to her mockingly, oh my gosh, the girl cried out as Smith then fired again and again into her chest, followed by one more shot into her face, which rendered her silent and motionless. You're dying, Smith then said coldly as he began dragging her into the workshop, calling her vermin and then piling her body on top of her cousins. Now before walking away, he placed the gun beneath her chin and fired one final fatal shot. And all of this was captured on Smith's audio recorder, which had been running throughout the entire afternoon and evening. So at this point, Byron Smith was satisfied he had solved his problem with the two dead teens inside his home, one stacked on top of the other. What would you have done in this situation at this point? What Smith did at this point is, instead of calling police, he went to bed. He went to bed and went to sleep. He didn't call the police until the next day. Can you imagine that? Like, I get wanting to protect yourself in your home, obviously, and using deadly force if necessary to defend yourself and protect yourself. But in this case, this guy made sure these teens were dead, and he was calm and cool as a cucumber while carrying all of this out. Bitch. Even saying taunting things to them, as though this were some kind of cat and mouse game. And then he just went to bed. Me personally, I don't think I'd be able to sleep for weeks after taking a human life under any circumstance. And yet this guy just went to bed and fell fast asleep with the bodies in his basement? Would you be able to sleep soundly after an experience like that? The next day, he finally called the Morrison County Sheriff's Department to report what had happened. When asked why he waited to report the crime, Smith said he didn't want to bother the police on Thanksgiving. So this gives some additional insight into Byron Smith, I think. He's a guy with reverence for authority. Some of us question or even challenge authority. Others among us bow and pander to it. This is a guy in the latter category. He loves authority and probably expected the cops to applaud him. So when they were looking into the dead teenagers, investigators found that Brady's sister had opened a complaint about him stemming from an incident that occurred on August 28th, where he allegedly stole prescription drugs from her home. And inside his car, police found evidence linking him to another burglary that night before his fateful decision to break into Byron Smith's house. But the investigators were seeing some problems with what had happened that night. Problems with how things went down. And there were discrepancies between what Smith was telling the investigators in his statement 
and what they were hearing on the audio from his recorder. Smith admitted to firing more shots than he needed to at the two teens, who were both unarmed, and to account for why he felt the need to shoot the teens in their heads after they were already down, he explained that Haley Kiefer had laughed after she fell down the stairs after having been shot the first time. If you're trying to shoot somebody and they laugh at you, you just go again, he explained. But this laugh by Haley Kiefer couldn't be heard on the audio. Instead, you can hear as she sounds afraid and cries out, oh my gosh. Smith also bragged that he, quote, got a good, clean, finishing shot up into the cranium. So it wasn't really feeling right to investigators who were faced with a dilemma here. And together with the district attorney's office, they began to consider something that's known as the Castle Doctrine. And this is a doctrine that addresses an individual's right to defend himself or herself with lethal force inside their homes against intruders. But it does have its limits. And according to Sheriff Michael Wetzel with the Morrison County Sheriff's Department, the law doesn't permit you to execute somebody once a threat is gone. Once a person is seriously, possibly mortally wounded to the degree that they're incapacitated, there's no further need for self-defense. And there were more evidence in the audio tape that Smith wanted to kill these kids. Before they entered his home, he can be heard on the tape saying, in your left eye, which is right where he ended up shooting Kiefer, right near her left eye. And he can also be heard saying, I realize I don't have an appointment, but I would like to see one of the lawyers here, which was him like rehearsing what he intended to say after what he planned to carry out. So he already knew he'd likely need an attorney. And then some of the statements he made with investigators included things like, quote, I am not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess, not like spilled food, not like vomit, not even like diarrhea, the worst mess possible. And I was stuck with it in some tiny little respect. I was doing my civic duty. If the law enforcement system couldn't handle it, I had to do it. The law system couldn't handle her and it fell into my lap and she dropped her problem in my lap and she threw her own problem in my face and I had to clean it up, end quote. In a way, this is not all that different from Green River killer Gary Ridgway believing he was doing the police a favor by killing sex workers in Seattle. Reviewing everything they had from the statements he made with police to the things he said when he was alone to the unreasonable and excessive amount of shots fired. Authorities went ahead and charged Byron Smith with two counts of second-degree murder. But then those were later bumped up to first-degree murder with premeditation because he knew they were coming that night. The trial began on April 21, 2014 and lasted for seven days. Byron Smith contended that he was just defending himself and his attorney argued that the elderly man was afraid after the previous burglaries. But the prosecution countered that Smith had been lying in wait in his basement, anticipating killing the teenagers after they entered his home. It was all planned. And it was argued that the nine shots that were fired between the two teens were unnecessary and excessive. On April 29th, the jury deliberated for three hours and eventually found Smith guilty on both counts, first degree murder with premeditation. And for that, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Afterward, some of the jurors were interviewed by the press, and it became pretty clear that it was the audio recordings that held the most sway with them. 
One of the jurors said the audio was the most damning evidence. He said, quote, that audio recording of the actual killings and the audio recording of Mr. Smith's interview immediately after his arrest pretty much convinced me that we were dealing with a deranged individual. After he was sent to prison, Smith appealed the conviction and the sentence. The Minnesota Supreme Court upheld the conviction and so did a federal court. So there are some states where what Smith did would have been legal. States like Florida, Georgia, Texas, and Michigan have stand your ground laws. If someone breaks into your home in those states, it's your right to shoot them dead. But Minnesota does not have a stand your ground law. Instead, it has a reasonable person doctrine, which basically invites the question, what would a reasonable person do? Like, for example... In a case of a person running a red light and causing bodily injury, a jury might be asked, would a reasonable person run a red light? The answer, of course, is no. A reasonable person would not run a red light. And so, just like how I asked earlier, when I asked what you would do in this situation, would a reasonable person have done what Byron Smith did? Would a reasonable person have, after wounding each teenager to the point that they were incapacitated, down for the count, would a reasonable person have then shot each of them in the head to ensure they were dead? What do you think? Do you think Byron Smith acted reasonably or was his prison sentence justified? Let me know what you think in the comments if you're enjoying this episode on YouTube or on Patreon. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe if you haven't already. That way you'll receive alerts each time a new episode drops, which happens every Wednesday now. Next week, we'll be back with a new theme and a new case. Don't forget to tune in or save it for the week after and binge. See you then. <laughs>